This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Honey Badger. Your code is going to have errors, even code written by an amazing developer such as yourself. When bad things happen, it's nice to know that Honey Badger has your back. Honey Badger makes you a DevOps hero by combining error monitoring, uptime monitoring, and cron monitoring into a single, easy-to-use platform, saving you time and your cash. Remote Ruby listeners get 30% off for six months. Simply mention Remote Ruby when signing up and they'll apply the discount to your account. No credit card required. This is Remote Ruby. Have you any remote ideas to the meaning of the word? What's up, what's up? Hey, hey, what's going on, guys? Yo. Just fair warning, it's loud in my house. People are working on it. My kids have no respect for their parents. And it is anarchy here. So eh, it happens. Literally right. on cue. I can hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They sense a disturbance in the voice. They sensed <laughs> you were calm for a minute. I don't even hear those noises anymore. Like when I started doing therapy online, when the pandemic hit, my therapist was like, that doesn't bother you. And I was like, no, I just like used to it. But it does bother me on things like this because. I don't want you to hear all that. That's annoying. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Like uh, when I lived in New York City for a year, it took a long time to get used to it. But the ambulances, you know, the train going by is just so loud. But at a certain point, I didn't even really hear it anymore. It was really strange. But then I remember coming back to visit my parents in the Midwest. And I was like, it's so, it's so quiet here. It's kind of like unnerving. <laughs> We noticed that because my parents, like, they live in suburbs, like, pretty quiet suburbs. And even moving to, like, the city of Memphis, like, when I was in college, I would go stay at my parents. I'm like, wow, it's so different. Like, there's no sirens. There's no honking. Just street traffic in general. It's weird. Yeah, that's what it's going to be like when we move. We're going to be in a little dead-end street of, like, 12 homes. So (laughs) there's going to be no... No, nothing out there, which will be nice, but it's going to be weird, I think, for a little while. We're moving next to a hospital, so. You'll have Thanks. a few ambulances, maybe some helicopters. The helicopter landing pad is literally across the street, <laughs> but it works out. That's the hospital we go to. Like our children go there. They have a women's hospital. My wife goes to, and then they're in our network. So like there's worse places to live than by a hospital. I mean, I live almost beside a fire station and I can tell you right now that is way worse. Oh yeah. They don't like understand that at night there is no one on the street. There's no reason for them to be like rolling coal with their hand, like on the (laughs) horn the entire time at like three in the morning. I'm like, Oh my God, please. That's funny. At the last job I had, we recorded videos too, and our office was in New York City across the street from a fire station. And I was like, how in the hell is anybody going to get any work done? And we ended up putting in like soundproof windows on that side of the building and just like, well, I guess we'll deal with it and see what happens. I think it worked out pretty well for the most part, but yeah, fire stations are real loud. So what have you guys been up to this week? I've been at, I've been at a resort, (laughs) admittedly, I guess for context, what's the date? The 7th of August. So on Monday, today's Thursday, on Monday, hurricane, I have no idea how to pronounce it because I didn't even really know it was coming. 
which is kind of sad because I live on the coast in like the path of the hurricane. I had no idea just because I live in my own little reality apparently, but I luckily found out and got some non-perishable food. And that night, the hurricane, it wasn't even supposed to be a hurricane. It was just, it was not even like a tropical storm. And then all of a sudden it saw the coast of North Carolina and it started hauling. So we got hit like directly. Like I was, I stood in the eye of it for a little while. It was pretty freaky, but it wasn't the worst. Like we've had way worse, like two years ago, Florence hit and that was just devastating, but it wasn't that bad, all things considered. But a tree fell in my backyard while I was out there actually. And it fell on the power line, not the tree, a limb, just like a big limb fell on it. And it ripped the the meter box off the back of our house. So apparently when that happened, like that's not something the electric company fixes. So they came out and they cut down the wire or like stopped the wire from being like live and just like chilling on the ground and like swinging around the trees and stuff. And then electricians had to come and rewire everything like back onto the house and replace all the boxes. And then eventually the electric company decided to come back and rewire it all. Although when they left, they didn't actually turn the breaker on (laughs) for some reason. Like they turned, they got everything ready and didn't turn it on. But it's like in the 90s and the hundreds here and staying in a house without AC for four days is just not even an option. So I was like, if I'm going to have to go to a hotel and risk my life, because I live in a tourist location and I have mixed feelings, mostly negative about tourists in general here. So especially during COVID. So I was like, if I'm going to risk my life going to a resort to not die of heat stroke, I'm at least going to like pay up a little bit, not stay like a hundred dollar one, like I would typically do. So I got a nicer hotel and hung out there for a little bit, but they turned my power back on and I'm very grateful because their Wi-Fi was total poo. You've had quite the week. I feel like the fixing your power, but then not turning on the breakers, kind of like writing the code, but never like running it before you push it up. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And all of this on my like first week of work. So (laughs) not the greatest. I was pretty much completely like, I don't think I worked more than, I couldn't work much on Tuesday because I couldn't get into a hotel until four and almost the entire city didn't have power. So there's several beaches like right in a row where I live. So I literally just drove 15, 20 minutes down the road to another beach. And apparently they didn't get hit as hard because the weather here is really weird. And so they were up all and running and I hung out there, but I just want to make a public announcement that if the power goes off and you're at a stoplight and there is no stoplight anymore, it is a four-way stop sign, people, please. (laughs) I feel like it's common sense, but apparently not. (laughs) I just heard like smashes and crashes all day long. I'm like, great. So now fire and rescue has to go deal with that on top of all the other stuff. It's not default green light. It's default no. red light. <laughs> no, like, no. When you get to the light, you don't keep going. You stop when you get to a light. No matter if no one's there, you, it's a four-way stop sign. Like I said, tourists. That's quite the week on your, your first week at a new job. How's that going? That is going pretty well. I am learning a ton, although really like, 
it was kind of hard to do much and like focus because like I had to run back and forth with the electrician and yada yada because I rent my house, but my landlord doesn't live in the city and all of my roommates have been gone for like a month or two. I don't even know. I kind of lost track at this point. And so I had to kind of deal with some of that. But so it was kind of hard to focus until I finally, I got back in yesterday and they turned the, or I turned the power on technically. And then today I've been able to start getting back to normal. So that's been nice. It'd be nice to put electrician on your resume now. Yeah. I can turn the power on given certain conditions. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. That's, that's gotta be tough to get any work done. So well, hopefully things calm down for you. There's no more like storm stuff happening. Is there <laughs> well, all over it, with? It's been storming all week. Yesterday I got like a little paranoid because it was like really starting to come down again. And I was like, Oh my God, if I lose power, I'm just going to lose my mind. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, it's really bad when it's like, when it's extended for that long, you know? Yeah. So I was talking to a buddy and he was like, oh, that's really smart that you grabbed all non-perishable foods. He hasn't lived here very long. He's like, and I I did not. I like filled my fridge and I was like, yeah, that's not the way to do it because I had to empty my fridge and I'm really glad I did because I accidentally left one thing, like one container and it was white and our fridge is white. So I just missed it. I'm not really interested in opening that part of the fridge anymore. Let's just say. Yeah. And your Totino's pizza rolls can't last forever. Yeah. (laughs) The worst part is I kept finding toaster strudels that I'd lost. And I was so upset because like I had no power to cook them or I would have cooked them. And there was no way that they were going to like stay okay by the time I got to where I was going. It was just, it was just a really sad feeling like throwing away all that stuff. And try and salvage them with a lighter or something. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, in a really ideal situation, all that food would have been donated, right? Like, I don't believe, like when I move out of houses, I don't throw stuff on the curb. I like go donate it to Habitat for Humanity or whatever. The food at that point had been without power since like midnight the night before. And I was like, I don't think you're really allowed to give that away. Yeah, that's, oh man, what a week. How are you doing, Jason? Have you had a hopefully less eventful week? Yeah, I mean, I thought my week was bad, but <laughs> it sounds pretty damn good right now. It's been good. We, I don't know how much the last time we sold our house, we bought a house. Everything happens to the end of the month. Deals. So. Yeah, you know, breaking decks, cashing checks. I get an office where it doesn't beep every time a door opens in my house. Yeah, other than that, things are good. It's because they can be. I haven't done anything cool that I can think of. I mostly just... Last week I talked about we were building, rebuilding our editor and reflex and cable ready and view component. I've just been refactoring and refactoring and cranking out view components, which is cool. It's a little monotonous, but the end result's really cool. That's exciting. Yeah. I still haven't gotten the chance to dive into view component deeply. I need to, but most of what I'm doing is like, you know, high level template stuff and it view component really, really makes sense when you're like building products so you can reuse like pieces of that design. But mine being trying to be generic, it makes it a little harder, but yeah, it's fun to see Nate working on stimulus reflex more and seeing all those changes coming out actively. Like there's a lot of movement going on there. I haven't even kept up with all that because we've just been like so heads down 
Yeah, you're like making something with it. It's like the transition that I went from kind of building the notifications thing and refactoring it. And then this week, like basically I got the bones of the notifications working in the gem. And then this week was like, okay, go deeply build it out into jumpstart. And that, you know, immediately was like, oh, there's some things I need to fix or like this option doesn't parse correctly and it needs to like, you know, check the different types and and do whatever. So yeah, that's definitely like the phase you go through where you're like, you know, get the bones work in ideally and then go actually implement something with it, something real. And then you start to figure out where all the rough edges are and, you know, you're kind of in the weeds on that part, which, uh, you know, Nate working on code funds, forms and UI and that stuff, I'm sure informed a lot, but I know like you were talking about with the the form stuff you contributed to stimulus reflex, like that's a good example of like, here's a use case. Here's what we can do to, to improve that. Which is cool. Yeah. That form stuff actually been paying dividends for us already, which is kind of cool. We have a separate, it's not a separate team, but we have two to three developers on one project right now, which is half of our dev team. And they're doing some reflex stuff too. And so like, we're actually really, I guess, doubling down on it right now. And I didn't really think about it, but like, since we're hiring, it is kind of a cool thing to be like, Hey, we're actually using this in production. Like, I guess I kind of take that for granted now too, because I've been using it. I'm sure it's not every company wanting to bet on a technology like that. So if you're listening, you're still hiring up until... I don't know. Hopefully the time you hear this. (laughs) Yeah. It's like uh, the rare job opportunity that they're using like literally the latest tech or whatever. I mean, aside from working for Basecamp, like, right. (laughs) Yeah. You guys have any other stimulus reflex features that you're going to try and build or mostly just the focused on the, the site preview thing? Yeah, we, we have several things in our pipeline, not enough people to do them right now. But the main focus for me is the editor. And that's been a lot of fun. We keep like refactoring and trying to get the API just right. But like we write tremendously less JavaScript and actually use a lot more features of Rails than you would think. So like even things like every time we re-render the component, we don't do a database lookup. Like we just send all the params over and just do like, we were working with params right now. I'm trying a thing where maybe we can just actually like new up an instance from the params so that we can just treat it like an instance of it. And so far that's been really cool. So like, I don't know, it just keeps getting sweeter and sweeter. That's cool. That's very much in line with what I do for notifications. Cause when you, instantiate a new notification you pass in your params but then we have to save it to the database so we have to serialize those params and then later on when you want to render it out we need to take the database record and repopulate you know an instance of of your notification class so you have all your helper methods again you know so it's the same concept which is like something until i feel like until stimulus reflex did that and I was like, that's really interesting. I don't feel like I hardly ever used that pattern in the past where it's like, yeah, let's just create this object in memory for the request or whatever, just temporary. And 
you know, we can rehydrate it later on when you send the params back over or whenever you need to. I didn't really use that too often. And like the only other example that I'm thinking of off the top of my head was Basecamp's got that name of person gem that they published, which is like, you know, everybody normally goes straight for the first name, last name columns on their model. And then they make, you know, a full name method on the user model that just concatenates them. But that one was like, what if we just return an object and it represents a name and it knows how to, you know, convert to different formats where you might want the first name, last initial or whatever. That sort of thing I thought was really interesting. Build a little class to wrap that logic. And effectively, you're just using Active Record to do that, you know, in your case. But same concept's pretty neat. Just build little little objects and, and use them for encapsulating that logic around it. It's kind of exciting to hear y'all say this because when I was pairing with Nate on Stimulus Reflex before anyone was really using it, that was like his main goal was like, I want to empower people to write more Ruby. He's like, I want Ruby to be cool. I want like, I like Ruby. I want to write Ruby. I don't want to write as much JavaScript. And it sounds like it's kind of crazy to look back and be like, yeah, man, he did it. He really like, it got really popular and it really is, I think, empowering people to write Ruby again and to like learn more Ruby, which is fun to see. Yeah, I explained it. I was helping Andrew Fumero with something. I don't know how to describe it, but essentially like there was a way, since we know Ruby really well, that we could make something way easier than it needed to, like than you would think it would be. And it was because we know Ruby, right? We know the ins and outs of it better than we know the ins and outs necessarily of like a JavaScript library or framework. I don't know. It just felt good. Yeah. A concrete example of that might be somebody I was talking to recently about translations and internationalization was like, they're asking, how do you translate your JavaScript? You know, if you're building a view component, you got to put all your you, all your translations in the JavaScript, which is like, great. Now you got to download all your JavaScript, but all the strings in every language. That doesn't sound fun. So they were, uh, like, we looked at the polyglot JS, I think, that Airbnb made. And, you know, their Ruby Rails app. And they include the translations along with their, like, API responses so that the client doesn't have to, you know, know everything. And you get to write more Ruby and use your I18N, you know, niceties that are already built into Ruby and Rails and not have to rewrite any of that nonsense on the client side, which I thought was awesome. So, yeah, I think all those things, they really get back to that like developer speed thing. You know, it may not be the most, you're not sending as, you're maybe sending a little bit more stuff over the wire, it may not be as, you know, optimized. For the most minimal, you know, traffic from your your back end of your client, but like client side is going to be way smaller. You're going to have a lot less JavaScript. You know, your front end should run more consistent across phones and desktop, which is good. And then you can do all your caching and performance stuff on the server, which is great. You know, do more more Ruby stuff. Before we move, I think you said, and I like admittedly like phased out for a second, but 
I think you said you couldn't send translations into view components, and I wasn't sure if you misspoke or I misheard you. I think he means like Vue.js. Okay. Yeah, Vue.js. There we go. Or I was React very confused. Or whatever. Yep. Yeah, because view components are all server side. We use yep. we use internationalization and yeah yeah anything you got you know server side you have access to all the you know standard internationalization tools but to do that on the client side in your JavaScript is a whole you know rigmarole then you got to duplicate that all your translations server side and client side and have fun the way we've been working around that before this stuff is we actually just dump the Rails translation in a data attribute and let stimulus pick it up and replace the value. And it's definitely not perfect, but it's, it's worked enough. We actually do that with some caching things too. So we don't have to cache like a bunch of versions. We'll just like cache one version and just always replace it like a timestamp, right? We'll just dump out a generic one and then use moment to replace it. I don't know. I'm hoping that we'll be able to get around some of that kind of stuff with more reflex type things. Uh, one thing you were talking about was it might not be as performant. And like that is a concern I have. And when we've kind of tried to preemptively think about those things, we haven't really had tons of performance concerns, but there are certain things where like you click it and you would like immediate feedback. Mm-hmm. And we don't necessarily want to use JavaScript to do that every time. So one thing we've been doing is we actually have like an animation class and all it does is like stop pointer events on a div and just have it like kind of zoom in and out in terms of like opacity. Mm -hmm. And that's like a sign that it's doing something. And that's worked really well for us because like take an action, it disables like a whole div and like you can tell it's doing something and then it renders back and like, it's not as quick or as like, like instant feeling as React, but it's still pretty quick and it doesn't feel like there's a lag because you know it's doing yeah. something. Yeah, and like the editor loading immediately versus like, oh, let's go download five megs of JavaScript to build this reactive you know, editor on the client side. That's gnarly. So you're giving that a little bit of a trade-off. It is what it is, but like you've already got your WebSocket connection open. So literally the only time that you're going to take is rendering just a regular old HTTP request. You know, it's not like you're even looking up the domain and, you know, initializing a new connection to the server. It's already there. So it should be faster than a regular HTTP request, but not a, not a huge amount, but a few milliseconds for sure. So and all that helps because you're really trying to get down to 200 milliseconds or less, really. One thing that LiveView does in Phoenix that I don't, I don't even want to think about like how they do it, but they have a way to know actually to just return the diff back. And yeah, that's like, a thing. Like the format of that, they showed a little bit in that screencast or something, you know, and like that was interesting because it like knew what changed on the page. And I was really curious how they did that because, you know, stimulus reflex is naive about it. It's like, we'll just render the whole page or whatever you tell right. us. And that's fine. But like something they're doing is really, really efficient. Yeah. It's like the stimulus reflex way works 90% of the time, right? Like 
yeah. but there are some pages even with like caching like moderate caching not aggressive but like moderate caching and optimized queries it still takes a second to get that whole page re-rendered and when i say a second i don't mean a literal second but it takes some time to still do that and it'd right. be really cool to have that like here's a really quick diff bam yeah, it's really interesting. Like, I wondered if maybe that when those events happen, they serialize the, you know, maybe they convert the DOM into a string and send it over, and then the server side does the diff or something. Like, I, w- I wondered if that was how it works. Because right now, like, Stimulus Reflex does diffing on the client side between the two, and then it updates, which is like your standard practice for a lot of things client side but it seems like elixir is doing something more efficient maybe so or at least on the on the back end you know serving of the, of the changes so yeah like if anybody knows how they do that i would love to you know hear from you should let us know on twitter or whatever it seems like something that is bound to get moved into stimulus reflex at some point just like as an optional you know diffing mechanism or something or maybe it just flat out replaces the current solution for it right now. The way it works currently is like probably by far the easiest way of handling things. But yeah, certainly seems like it's doable, but it almost feels like you have to have the client side send the HTML over to the server and then have it know that to do the diff. So I don't know. Really uh, curious to see how that works. Let's face it. Your code is going to have errors, even code written by an amazing developer such as yourself. When bad things happen, it's nice to know that Honey Badger has your back. Honey Badger makes you a DevOps hero by combining error monitoring, uptime monitoring, and cron monitoring into a single easy to use platform, saving you time and your cash. Honey Badger monitors and sends error alerts in real time with all the context needed to see what's causing the error and where it's hiding in your code so you can quickly fix it and get on with your day. The included uptime and cron monitoring also lets you know when your external services are having issues or your background jobs go AWOL or silently fail. Go to honeybadger.io and discover how Star, Josh, and Ben created a 100% bootstrapped monitoring solution. Why is this important? Self-funding means they only answer to you, the developer, rather than a venture capital overlord. Remote Ruby listeners get 30% off for six months. Simply mention Remote Ruby when signing up and they'll apply the discount to your account. No credit card required. This is like literally a question. Like, is it possible that they're like pre-rendering some stuff somehow? Like, I don't even know how that would even work. But in my mind, I was like, if I was like on a page and I wanted something to like show up way faster than normal, even if you're just like um, navigating between pages, like I would like, preload it or pre-render it or whatever, or prefetch it, whatever it's called in whatever language you choose to use. But I wonder if that's even possible, if you could like anticipate that like, this is probably going to be the thing that they're going to do. And like somehow you like load it in through Stimulus Reflex and it's just ready to go as soon as they hit the button. I don't know enough about how Rails compiles templates, but I know that Phoenix as part of the compilation process, like that all, like all the templates just get compiled down. And I wonder if that has something to do with how they're able to do that is 
they just have this like bytecode version of it, right? So it's quicker, maybe right. quicker to, to access and diff on or something. I'm not really sure. That would yeah, make a maybe. lot of sense, especially because I'm pretty sure you're right that Rails, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say 100% sure that they don't like pre-compile templates when you like build your assets or anything. So yeah, maybe that is, maybe that's, that is probably the way they do it. They're compiled in memory somewhere, I think, because I think one of the last keynotes I watched of Tender Love, like two years ago or something, was talking about the template compilation stuff. But yeah, the thing is, like, if you have JavaScript affecting the client side, your server can't know about that. So, you know, if, if you had JavaScript change something in the HTML, you'd have to send that over to the server or you don't care and just server just sends back. I don't know. It seems like you have to send over the HTML to the server for it to know these elements need to change and just send the commands back, which looked to be the format of, of the live view stuff that was going over the wire that I saw in one of the demo videos. So I don't think that would have, you know, template compilation stuff would affect that. But yeah, I don't know. It, it's interesting for sure. I wonder though if the compilation would have an effect in terms of just like the raw speed of comparison, right? Like, I mean, you wouldn't be, it'd be the same thing as fragment caching though. I think, you know, same kind of thing. Like if it's already, if, it, if it's pre-computed on the server, because it could be, you know, then that's, that's as close as you can get. Cause I think what rails does in production is like, it's not opening the file every single time. You know, it does that when rails boots, and then adds it to like a hash so it can quickly look up which template and then it eval that. Whereas like in development mode, it's going to reread that file because you're going to be changing it and it wants to be able to recompile that. In production, it doesn't need to as much or whatever. So yeah, it's interesting. That's code that I've never ever looked into with how Rails does that. I went deep into the active job serializer recently, but never into really any of the action view stuff which is, I'm sure, particularly interesting if you ever wanted to really dig into these things. So I mentioned pre-call that I had a few questions for y'all about domain switching and stuff like that. So for context, I am working on a Jumpstart app. I am writing it from scratch with Eric a little bit, and but I'm kind of like primary like architect, I guess, if we were to like give ourselves titles and it's going to host this new podcast platform that Eric and I and our editors are embarking on with us. And the one thing I kind of like was thinking about because a lot of other companies already do this and it came out of the box with Jumpstart was doing subdomain switching. So I'm going to call them an account because that's what they're called in Jumpstart, and people listening to this may or may not use Jumpstart, but they should. Sometimes people call them teams, accounts, GitHub calls right. them orgs, you know? So yeah. it, it's really dependent on whatever you want to name it. It's almost always the same concept. Yeah, I, I liked org until I saw what y'all were doing where a user could have a personal account. Although that's also where like things started sliding in like a nasty direction of like, now I don't know what to do. Because basically, if you have an account, 
let's just say remote Ruby, for instance, is a, let me think how I said this. I set it up. So a user is an owner of a, or is like the prime or the admin or whatever it is in jumpstart of the team. And then that team can own podcasts mm-hmm. and then, you know, episodes and so on and so forth. So I wanted to have it set up so that I, as a user can log in and not on a subdomain. And then it will be like, okay. And it take me to like a personal page or, but I don't really want it to be a full personal page, like not a full account really, because I only want it to really be an account when they have a subscription of some sort, when there's a podcast, if they're just collaborators on others, then I don't really right. want you that to want... be an account. Yeah. Cause for reference, like we have accounts with a flag of personal. And so mm-hmm. to create something like Heroku or GitHub without doing polymorphic relationships where things get tricky, we set it up so that every user has a personal account by default. And then they can create other non-personal accounts that they can actually invite other people to. But the personal account is designed just to not ever invite other people to. So you can have your own you know, private repos on GitHub or private projects on Heroku. And then the other teams or, or accounts are like ones you can share with other people. You know, so like you're always signed into a, an account on Jumpstart, which was by design. It's just like having a user, but it's decoupled from it. So then you can simply look if you wanted to change the homepage and look at current user dot personal, you know, and, and see, okay, this is their, you know, they're logged in as themselves. Then you could show on the homepage there links to, you know, you're part of Remote Ruby, their team, and you have these two or three podcasts there and you could list those out and basically just use list out, you know, use that page to list out the current users, other accounts, and then their podcasts through those, you know, that would probably be what I would do to, to build that. That is what I ended up going towards after some waffling. Although when you said it, I started to think, I'm not sure I have personal accounts enabled. And now that you've said that, that might be the source of some of the issues I'm having where sometimes I try to log in and there's undefined methods all over the place that I can't like figure out. But that, that might be why, although I'm, I know for a fact the accounts I seeded in the beginning, 100% all had personal accounts. So I don't know. I started like waffling back and forth between like the kind of options because there's two kind of options that y'all offer. And I don't remember them off the top of my head. So I'm gonna let you do that for the subdomains. And one of them didn't make sense to me and the other did. And I think that's where I kind of got confused because I think in the docs, you say you recommend doing both. And I was like, beep, boop, beep, boop, crash. I know there's one option to turn off the personal accounts like entirely if you wanted. So that everybody's account, you can invite other people to. That doesn't really affect your use case. But, you know, like if you didn't want people to have their own private podcast for whatever reason, you could do that and turn that off. Then for the domain stuff, that is, let me, I'm pulling it up right now, actually. So we've got a, we've got an option for just turning on the different multi-tenancy options. So like, Every app is different. Some people want subdomains for everything, you know, so you would sign up for your own like subdomain at whatever.com 
that's good, but usually you also want the custom domains to map to a subdomain. So you're going to need that option too, probably. And then the only other option we had was the registering for an account with details. So like if you turn off the personal accounts, you can have like a account name field added to the registration so that you can force them to to fill that out. Those two usually are used together because if if they're registering and they're not going to get a personal account, you're going to want to create an account. You're probably going to want to you know ask like what's your company name or what's your podcast name when they sign up. So that feature is there just to to add that field basically. Yeah. So I remember thinking through all this and I decided that y'all can tell me you disagree with this and I will totally probably heed that opinion. But I decided that I did not want a user to be able to have a podcast under their personal account. And that if they wanted to have a podcast, that they would have to put it under an actual name slash team. In order to have a podcast, it must be under account. And so I made a podcast belong to accounts, not users. So, and I like that architecture, especially because like, let's say that you and Jason and I have like a massive falling out and Jason's like, well, screw you guys. I'm going to take the show on the road. And then he would want to kick us out of that. And I thought that by having it be under like the org, so whoever's like the admin of the org could then, you know, add and remove people. I thought that might make that easier. But that did introduce the kind of complexity, like I was talking about earlier. It was like, okay, well, now does a user have a personal account? Do they not? They kind of do, but it doesn't have, it's not like an account in the sense of the way the other accounts are, where like maybe they're paying or, you know, this or that. Like right. I kind of just dug myself down a hole and like confused myself to like a massive degree. Yeah. So treat the personal account as like an invisible account. The reason you want to associate your podcast and your other resources with accounts is that you can transfer them between accounts. So, you know, if you if you had the falling out and Jason was like, I'm gonna create my own, you know, podcast and then or team and and I want to just move it over to that one, because maybe, you know, you need to transfer it or something between owners or something. That makes it as easy as reassigning the ID, which is awesome. You know, and you can treat them the same across. You can, you're effectively treating a user individually who's got a personal account with the same rules as an account that has multiple people on it. So, you know, it keeps it consistent the way that you write your code, which is really, really handy. And then you're kind of already set up to transfers and whatever else you might need to do to, to organize your different accounts. So... Yeah, normally you want to associate that with that. Your any resources like a podcast in your example, always associate those with your account. And then for what you're doing, you to build your your little dashboard homepage thing, ignore the account. You don't like when you're doing resources, you can do current account.podcasts, you know, on your index in that controller and the podcast controller. But for the dashboard, just use current user.accounts and list those out. So instead of using the current account and you know, trying to use that, you can say, cool, you know, here's all of your stuff and we'll go off the user and what they have access to. So it could be like 
user has many podcasts through accounts. And then you could say current user.podcast and list all those out on your homepage. So that's kind of what I've done. And that's like, this is where things got a little bit tricky with notifications recently because you have, you know, these separate accounts and you want to be able to notify someone on a specific account. So you want to make sure your notifications are uh, organized accordingly. But in some cases, you may not, and you want the notifications to show up across accounts. So, you know, there's flexibility in that now, but I just got it working yesterday, this morning on trying to do that. But there's a lot of little things. If you're signed into one account and someone sends you a notification on a different one, you want to not see that immediately in the nav bar through the, the web sockets. So I've had to go through and just kind of organize it so that, you know, you can give it an account when you create a notification. And then if it's for the same one you're signed in and currently viewing, we'll display it immediately. Otherwise, you'll only see it when you switch accounts and look at the other one. So yeah, it's uh, it gets tricky when you want to have that stuff, which is why like adding teams and accounts and organizations after you build your app is the freaking nightmare. It's the worst. And so, you know, you deal with a little bit of wrapping your head around the complexity of it out of the box with Jumpstart, but like it's going to push you to organize it in the right way. And you're going to save yourself. I don't know how many hours it's been a ridiculous amount of savings that I've had like time-wise. Cause I think pretty much every app I built started out with just users having resources and then eventually I needed to add teams and the spaghetti really just piled on pretty fast. It was nasty. You said that at one point in the past and I took it to heart, especially after introducing teams after the fact at CodeFund. And I was like, oh my God, Chris was right. But I have another question because related to that, I remembered you saying you were working on the adding the notification stuff to Jumpstart. And I was like, perfect. It is right when I need the notification stuff. I was like, thank God Chris exists. And I tried to, uh, I tried to like, I don't merge or rebase with a uh, jumpstart and like had like the worst Git experience of my life. Like I had to like, I made it work a couple of weeks ago, but I had to do like allow different histories or something. There's like a flag for that. And then this time it wouldn't even let me do that. It's just like, we can't do this. And so I was wondering, because y'all don't have it written down anywhere, and this is the perfect documentation, right? How y'all suggest people upgrade when things come out in Jumpstart? Yeah, all that's actually... Big pain. All of that is actually on the... When you like have your license, the Git instructions show how you can basically clone from our repo, push up to yours, and then you have the exact same history as Jumpstart. And then you make your changes on your repo. And then you just have your origin of Jumpstart and you fetch that and merge it in. So at some point okay. there, you must have I like have it switched. rejiggered the origins there. Yeah, no, something. I... Like, because when you just said that, like, there was immediate, like, like that's wrong. Why would you do that? But no, yeah, that I, I definitely don't have that. I have it the other way around, and that makes complete and total sense now. And yeah, it, it, it the docs would exist, and I just would not. I, I guess I was thinking because I've been working in the app, and y'all have the ability to access docs in the app. 
it's not there. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was thinking. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because yeah. we include the docs in development just so that they're they're there for you and you have the docs that are relevant to the version you're working on because the website might be ahead of you know what what version you're on. So yeah, that that ends up kind of just treating it almost as a fork of the repo, you know, like we're we're hosting on GitLab because GitHub was going to be outrageously expensive and it may be better now with their team price changes, but I haven't looked it's into free it now, right? I think so, but there's some sure. still some features that are not free like GitLab, so you know, it would be nicer and actually the coolest part is like I don't know if that works actually. I haven't really used have you used the template feature on GitHub of a repo where you can like make a repo and it's a template and you click the button and it like clones the repo yeah. or something. I, I love wonder it. if that keeps the history on those or if there's an option, I think. Okay. Well, yeah. I know there's a minimum an option to bring over all the branches. Okay. Cause if so, then that would be perfect for what jumpstart is, you know? Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. It, it is not the easiest, but as long as you get that, you know, get stuff set up, it's just like merging in someone's fork at any time, which is nice. It's just that your code is going to evolve and jumpstart's going to still be jumpstart with new features. And so you're going to change things out of the core that you'll always have to deal with merge conflicts, but at least you can get upgrades. It's, it's like you're rewriting, you know, the template. So there, there's not much that can get easier to upgrade. Yeah. The, the gem file always, the gem file always gets me because you guys are monsters and it's not, it's not alphabetically organized. And I, I deeply loathe the both of you for that deep down hidden inside me. And the other thing is sometimes y'all use single quotes and sometimes you don't. So sometimes I'll like change like a, I'll change like a configuration, like from the jumpstart admin panel and it will like change the entire file to like single quotes. And I'm like, no, why? I know that the gems, like I left the gem file, the defaults, but the gems we've added in that section are alphabetical. And then we use standard. So standard should all be formatting everything the same. So that should at least be consistent for you. Yeah, I don't know why it's the integrations for like Sentry and stuff. Whenever I upgrade any of those or change any of those integrations, it puts it back into single quotes. And I decided oh, I was right. tired of dealing with it. So I just it told Standard to ignore it because I don't care. Yeah, because those are probably ones that Standard hasn't optimized because they're strings within strings that like right. the config writes. So we just need to go through and update those. And it was kind of the same thing with like, yeah, I went and added internationalization, but what I didn't do was internationalize the default rail scaffolds. And, you know, they're not fully internationalized, which seems dumb. They should be, but yeah, maybe that's a PR to make to rails. But, you know, those are, those are things like standard doesn't analyze meta Ruby code very well. You know, it's just looking at the actual yeah. code. So yeah, it makes sense. They can't evaluate that, but yeah. There was one, oh, one of the, the one cool thing I've done. So I wrote the notifications in the gem. And then because it's more complex to have them in Jumpstart with multi-tenancy, I actually override the generator and put that in Jumpstart with some customization for multi-tenancy. So when you run the notice notification generator, you get all that out of the box and it just works. 
which is pretty cool. So you get like extra features for your notifications that way. But I did have when I was first writing that template, I didn't do the, so the templates can be, you can leave them as like whatever .rb if you want, but usually you see them as .rb.tt. And I don't really know what the TT stands for other than template, but I left it as .rb and standard was like, what the hell am I looking at? Because it was like, why is there ERB inside your Ruby code? And then I changed it to TT and I think there's, you know, some sort of thing inside to ignore those files or whatever, because it stopped complaining as soon as I did that. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I don't want you to, I want you to ignore that one. Yeah, standard will only ignore Ruby files or will only evaluate, which is different from RuboCop because RuboCop will actually evaluate ERB as well, I believe. But I I use something else for that. But okay, so basically, I'm I'm kind of screwed in terms of like an easy upgrade path because of my my negligence and not reading the documentation. It happened all over again. It's just like school. You can, and I've done this to merge people's PRs before. When you go to GitLab or GitHub, you can look at compare two versions and then grab the diff. And so if you wanted to, you could just grab that and then go through. And that is actually really convenient when you want to merge three quarters of a PR or something, like not the whole thing. And then you just get a diff file and you apply that diff and then, you know, you or you just manually edit it first in your editor and then you know take what you want and that i found to be pretty nice so if you kept track of the last commit that you were looking at from jumpstarter that you had pulled you could do it manually like that and it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world but it's certainly going to be a little bit easier and just to have similar histories i don't know you could probably clone a new copy of jumpstart pro and generate a diff between the two folders and then re-clone or use that one as your history and then pull over all of your changes and that might work. But yeah, because you're not going to have a consistent Git history without doing something like that, I don't know that you can pull them back together. I don't know that you're, you're like quite capable of changing time yet in history. But if you can figure that out, like you should go fix a lot of stuff. I, I was able to once, it let me one time because you can pass like a ignore different histories flag or something to get and that worked, but not this time. So I will obviously be copying and pasting back and forth. I almost, when I figured out that it wasn't going to work, I almost wrote, you know, Rails diff. To, there's a tool called Rails diff to yeah, I love uh, that. Diff the versions of Rails. And I was like, I'm going to build this for, I'm going to build this for Jumpstart. And then I realized that you you freaking sinner you're not uh you're not you don't have ver- you're not tagging and versioning it oh no not really because there's not really any versions it's like a rolling release all the time basically anything i push up to master is you know the latest release so i don't, I despise I don't you. package anything because there's not really any like you know there's not really any need to it's when you tag it with the you tag it with the date i'll I, well Yes, there is really no need to, but for people like me who have like completely diverged, the ability to be like, okay, I know what version of Jumpstart I'm on now, and I can easily go to GitHub or GitLab or whatever and like diff those changes, that would be. How would you know optimal. what version you're on? Because it would be like in Jumpstart. Like you if mean you like commit. Well, you could do like a you could use like the Git Shaw 
Yeah, because um, if you had that, just compare that to head and you'd have your death. Yeah, I'm about to have to do some git magic and it's going to be dirty and I'm probably just the whole project's going to go away and my, the computer's just going to like saunter on out after it and then I'm just going <laughs> to become a farmer. What I've done in that situation is actually like I'll clone the repo and then start fresh and recreate it by hand because then like you were talking about your confusion around personal accounts and stuff. Then like start from scratch, do it the way that you understand now, which should be more informed. And then it'll end up basically the same, but cleaner. And you probably haven't made, unless you're a month in or whatever, you probably haven't made huge amount of changes that you couldn't go back and, you know, apply pretty quickly. Well, no, not for the most, well, actually kind of, well, the biggest difference is our view files are completely diverged. Mm -hmm. Like I, I'm not using anything really because I, I went hard in the component paint as they say. And at least those you can copy over, right? Right. You can get rid of those as long as you're not like switching to slim or Hamill. No, not again. (laughs) Not, (laughs) not anymore. I learned, I learned. Uh, so when is when is the notification stuff coming out? I'm it saying. is it is currently been pushed several times this week. I've cleaned up a few little odds and ends as I found them, but it's up there. Uh, so anybody that wants to use multi-tenant notifications and everything, it's all pretty much ready to go. I was cleaning up a little bit this morning and kind of wrapping up the last last bits. We got several PRs on the GitHub for noticed and. Good Lord, that's a 450 GitHub stars since like Monday or whatever. It's insane. So apparently people have been itching for notifications for Rails, I guess. But yeah, that's all live. I've been, you can actually go use it if you sign up for the jumpstartrails.com site and post on the forums. And some, if someone replies to a thread that you're subscribed to, you should get a real-time update in the nav bar little red dot should appear and the notification should show up there and it'll get written to the database, emailed out and published over the WebSocket, which is kind of cool. So that's sick. Jumpstartrails.com coupon code. Andrew is cool. I'm just kidding. (laughs) There's no coupon code, but whenever, whenever there is, I'm going to be pushed in on the streets again. Yeah. The hard part was like, I just want to make it accessible. So it's like 150 bucks. Like I can't really do it for less than that. It's so much work to support. So is it that I thought it was more, did y'all lower it? No, it's always been 150. So I mean, those are, those are rookie numbers. You need to, you need to pump those up now that you're (laughs) notification famous. My, my greedy self, I was thinking about, I was like, dude, he got 500 stars almost in a couple of days. I would be slapping that thing full of like, buy me coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, man, that's, notifications have probably been a good two weeks full time almost of of effort. It's been quite a bit and it's not including all the like, oh my gosh, how many times I built notifications in the past that are custom and not quite right, but always wanted to extract it and do it better and never did. So I'm excited that it's finally like, built hopefully saves people time you're gonna go and update the the free version of jumpstart and swap out the it's the old notifications that were like they always have to have an action 
and then we'll convert the action to a view file name and uh, render that dynamically. And while that worked, it wasn't great. So this will be a nice enhancement to all that, I think. I think we're, we're about at the end. Jason, you've been quiet. We kind of steamrolled. I'm sorry. All good. We all know you're the star. That's why in both of our examples, you were the one that left for like the big city and the bigger show. Yeah, that's, that's me. <laughs> big star. Well, if there's not anything else, I guess we can wrap up here and pick back up next week. Yeah. Go throw your hat in for the, the job at Podia if you're listening and looking for a, a Rails job. If it's still open, for real, reach out to me. I'm glad to hop on a Zoom or email with you and talk to you about the job. And I'm sure there will be more in the future. So if not now, later. Yeah. Even if you're as curious what it's like to work there, hit me up. Cool. All right, guys. Well, guess I'll talk to you next week. See ya. Peace. Damn it.